Did you have a favorite subject in school? For me, for years, I always answered lunch and recess. And now, as a graduate student at the University of Guelph trying to get a PhD in food science, I would still say that my favorite subjects are lunch and recess. My name is Louis Colrotolo, and I love science. I do it every day, I talk about it most days, and all of that had to come from somewhere. Fundamental experiences in learning science can spark a creativity that lasts a lifetime, which is why I'm talking today with a good friend, Jesse Bartle, who is a science teacher in a high school. Now, this is a little bit different from our normal show. Typically, we talk to scientists and graduate students who have specified areas of research or no really in-depth knowledge about one specific topic. But we are going to talk to an educator today. Jessie was a graduate student at one point, but she learned instead of a specific topic, she learned how to teach a topic. So she is going to walk us through what it is to be a critical thinker, how we instill young minds with the curiosity and the critical thinking skills in order to succeed in science and in every aspect of our lives. And since science is a part of our everyday lives and we're everyday people, this conversation about science is brought to you from my living room to Jesse's living room. And while we're recording this episode, you may hear some things going on in the background. This is actually the sounds of Jesse's daughter, who at the point of recording this audio had trapped their cat under a laundry basket. Now, to clarify, the laundry basket did have a lot of holes, so the cat was in no danger. But there certainly was a lot happening in the background while we were recording this audio. And I kind of love it. Because that is exactly the kind of thing that we want to highlight here. Science is a part of our everyday lives. It's not polished, it's not perfect, and our conversations about science should be exactly that, a conversation. They don't need to be highly edited and polished and scripted, and rather they could just be conversations. Our conversation with Jesse is going to go down the path of critical thinking. And since we're critical thinkers, we can critically assess that we don't know everything. Which is why you're listening to We Know Some Stuff. Hi Jesse, how you doing today? I'm good, how are you? I am doing so good over here. Could you do us a favor and walk us through your educational history? Sure, I'd be happy to. I went to St. John Fisher College and graduated in 2007 with a Bachelor of Arts in Biology and Adult Education. I went to SUNY Brockport and graduated with a Master's of Science in Science Education in 2013. And then in 2017, I graduated from SUNY Brockport again with a Certificate of Administration. All right, that seems like a lot of uh, different things, a lot of, a lot of things. What I want to preface before we get too deep into this is that Jessie is not our normal kind of guest on this show. She is an educator, right? And especially in a time now during a global pandemic, our educators are going through some crazy stuff. So I think before we get started, I want to thank you for all that you're doing for uh, the kids from afar, from behind the computer screen, and from in person. So thank you. Of course. So today we are a little bit off topic. We we aren't going to necessarily talk about any one specific facet of science. We're not going to try to explain anything about molecules or, or organisms. 
but we're going to explain how we explain science. It is a little bit meta. So what is your exact job, Jessica? I am a science teacher. I teach a living environment, which is basically biology. And what grade level are you at? I have ninth and 10th grade for living environment. I also do electives. This year I'm doing environmental issues, and that's upperclassmen. Ooh, that sounds like an exciting course. I never had cool courses like that when I was in school. It is pretty fun. When we think about science teachers, I think we might have a lot of memories from when we were growing up about science teachers we love, science teachers we hate, those that made it interesting, and those that made it really, really boring. As an educator, what do you find is the most difficult thing about teaching science? I would say the most difficult thing about teaching science is just helping kids to think more critically. Mm, This is like a topic we could spend hours on. Like, get my feet wet. What are we talking about? To do science effectively, you have to be able to take the information that's given to you and kind of put together the pieces of what you know to figure stuff out. Because science is always changing. There's always more that we're learning and that we're finding out. So really, at any given moment, you're doing the best with what you have at that time. But come one year or ten years, it's going to be different. That is really the nature of science in a nutshell. It is always changing. Always. So what kind of strategies do you have to adapt in order to keep up with like the changing times of science? I have always been a big science person. I love it. I go out of my way to do professional development for science. I attend trainings. I um, do virtual learnings. I do curriculum writing. I'm involved in committees. I do all kinds of stuff to continue learning. Um, Just that way I'm relevant with what I'm teaching. I know for sure, like whenever I visit you or whenever we run into each other, like in real life before, you know, we were you know, physically seeing each other, um, I, you would always like ask me, you'd be like, oh, let's talk science, Lewis. Yes, because people are always like, when am I ever going to use this? And I love your field in food science because people eat. You do use it. And I love seeing when kids make the connection between what they're learning and how it relates to their life. Because everything is science. Everything is science. It really all comes down to that. The basic building blocks of humanity, all the way down to watching a TV show, uh, eating a muffin. Every single thing we do is science. Everything. So you probably get uh, some resistance, and and you mentioned it. You said it just a couple seconds ago. You said, uh, why do we need this? Why is this important? What kind of answers can you give to people who uh, bring up that kind of question? So as a teacher, my first priority is always building relationships with the kids. So I learn what they like, their interests, their hobbies, what they don't like, all kinds of stuff. So once I know who they are, I can personalize it and make it relevant to them. And I found that to be my biggest success is being able to personally identify the content with what I know, kind of like where they're coming from. Yeah, that is so uh, such a good thing. And, you know, one, I can't imagine 
how much work it takes for you to like really truly understand all of the students that you come across. You know, you have this large group of students and to really understand what motivates all of them. That's like some A plus teacher stuff going on over there. So um, I I think about this uh, very similarly to even when I give presentations uh, to academic communities is that I'm always thinking, like, how can I connect this to something else? How can I show that this is actually happening in our real life? So with that being said, do you have any like tips or tricks? Like, what do you try to use? Uh, more often in order to integrate science into someone's everyday thinking? I just, over the years, I've taught for 12 years, and I always make the connections between science and what's going on. So I'll be known to, if we're having a conversation in class about anything, just in general, I have a fun way, I think, bringing it back to science. So like, for example, this one kid the other day, talking about how hungry he was and how he wanted some chicken wings. And we were learning about food chains. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, think about what percent of the stored energy are you going to get from the chicken wing compared to if you ate a salad? And I'm like, which one would you get more of the stored energy from? He's like, well, the salad, because I'd get 10%, but I want the chicken wing. I'm like, well, yeah, you know, I get that. But I'm like, think about the food chain because, you know, it's 10% energy is transferred each time. And so, like I said, I have this obnoxious way of no matter what they're talking about, I bring it back to science. Yeah, I love it. You just kind of attack them. Everything, whether they are hungry for lunch, you just go and hit science. It's like a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's probably not a gift always to them at every moment, but it's definitely a gift you have. So, you know what, uh, we're not necessarily here to talk science about science, 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 but could you do us a favor and just briefly explain this transfer of energy, this food supply chain? Because I think that's super interesting. Could you just, like, give us a tidbit of what you're talking about? Sure. So, I always like to explain things starting big picture, because kids can get big picture. So, we know that there's the sun. Sun's really a big ball of energy. We know that. Well, we know that plants need stuff to grow. So the plants are going to take in that sun. And something that's more like content specific is that the plants are going to use that sunlight, the energy from the sunlight, and they're going to take the carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere um, along with the water that's in their environment. And they're going to do this kind of like magic. Well, it's really photosynthesis, but... Yeah, it's magic. It's pretty, it's like a scientific phenomenon. It's not like a small deal. It's not. It's like a big deal. And sometimes, you know, if you kind of spice it up a little bit, you know, because I'm more excited by that. You know, so there's this something that happens um, in the chloroplast and it produces glucose. So plants don't, they have to provide their own food to survive. So because they can provide their own food, whatever they want with those resources, um, they're going to have 100% of their stored energy, and they're going to have to use that energy for life processes. But there are tons of heterotrophs, consumers, that have to rely on other things for energy. So herbivores will consume the grass. Well, 10% of that energy that's stored in the plant is going to be transferred to the herbivore. The other 90% is going to get released as heat and whatnot in the environment. 
But each time that energy is passed on, only 10% of it's passed on. So by the time you get to the end of a fusion, you're at like 0.1% um, energy. So that's a little bit about the transfer of energy, but I always like to embed in there some higher level, like critical thinking questions. Like when you look at this food chain, why are there only four levels? You know, um, just kind of getting them to think about, think about the whole concept and not just like, oh, here's a food chain, energy decreases, but really why? This is exactly what I wanted to talk about. Critical thinking. First of all, thank you for uh, explaining that. Like, I totally understood it, and food chain is not the kind of thing that I understand, so super awesome. But we're talking critical thinking for this show. How does one teach critical thinking? Because you can't just say, learn this, 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 and this, and now you're a critical thinker. Honestly, it comes with experience um, as a teacher. I always knew how important questioning was when I started teaching, but I could never think of good questions to ask. And then just as I got more experience in doing more research, like with um, Costa's levels of thinking um, or Bloom's taxonomy, um, different levels of application, things like that, I, I was able to kind of, in my mind, assess where they're at, like what their current um, level of understanding is, where they need to be, and kind of like have a guiding question that will combine the two and kind of get them where I'm going. The other thing too with questioning is that I try to make it individualized and unique. And again, going back to the relationship building with the kids, I know my kids um, and I love my kids. And so when I'm doing the same concept with different kids, I'll ask the same question to get to the same target answer different ways, depending on that kid. Um, so it's really personalizing it to that student and where they're at. Awesome. Yeah. It's really, you're, you're tailoring strategies to get from that point A to point B. But point A to point B is never really a straight line. It's quite a journey. And uh, that's where that critical thinking comes into place. And um, I think critical thinking, and I'm critically thinking about this right now, is uh, really so, so, so important in our modern day lives. And I want to bring up an example and, and, and wonder if you have any opinions about it. But when someone reads an article online, maybe on a social media site or something, a lot of times people will take that as truth. But a lot of times what we read online is not the truth. So we have to be able to critically think. So how, in your opinion, would someone critically assess information that they read? Um, I think the first thing that's important is that they assess the validity of the source. Is it peer-reviewed? So what does peer-reviewed mean? Could you explain? So peer-reviewed means that the information presented in that source is supported and confirmed or approved by other scientists in a related field. So it's pretty valid. Yeah, so, so you said if we're looking at a source, we want to see if it has been peer-reviewed. So that just basically means that other people agree with this. It's less of an opinion, more of a scientific proven point. 
other scientists who have the relevant experience and knowledge and background. Right, like, I couldn't possibly peer-review an article about astrophysics. They wouldn't let me, because that's not my field. Yes. <laughs> we want to check the source, and we want to see if it's something is peer-reviewed. Any other tips out there to a spot like uh, Shaky Science? Yeah, science is evidence-based. So when you read something, it needs to be supported by data. Um, data, preferably, that has been demonstrated in repeated trials, where it's been confirmed that the results obtained are pretty standard and consistent. So it's evidence-based. It should have no no subjective language in it, no bias. Um, so what uh, what are some examples of subjective language? Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. So, like, I'm thinking if they're doing something with a vaccine, um, subjective language would be that this was an important trial or it's a necessary vaccine. I'd have to kind of think more, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe some examples of subjective language might be something like along the lines of um, a personal narrative. like. Oh, after I took this medication, I felt so much better. You know, it changed my life. Kind of things. Would that be, like, subjective? And subjective doesn't always have to be explicit. So be implicit. I mean, for example, like, when my kids write lab conclusions, um, uh -huh. they do it in three parts. The first is a claim. So they have this experiment. Your claim is what you learned from it. So I'll give an example of a recent one. We did see germination. So their claim was something along the lines of see germination is affected by multiple variables. Then they have to give support. And the support is always evidence. And the evidence are numbers that come from the data tables. So they would say, for example, when there was 25 milliliters of water, and I'm just making this up, seeds germinated. When the amount of water decreased to 10 milliliters, the number of seeds germinated was 10. So they're not saying more, less, increase, decrease. They're giving me specific numbers. Okay. I'm getting this. I'm very, very strict with that. So they need to tell me numbers, and it has to relate back to the claim. And when they do the analysis, that's the higher level thinking piece. Where, how does this apply? What relevance does this have? Make a connection between this and something that you've experienced. So the level that I teach is a lot of scaffolding. So I break it down. I give them guiding questions. I give feedback. Um, I give them questions to kind of like writing prompts to help them. But the point is to make the connection between what they did and what they know outside of that. Yeah, honestly, what you're saying right now rings so true to exactly what I should be doing. Like, when I write a conclusion, I have to start with a claim. I have to prove it with evidence. And honestly, I, I, I know that sometimes my advisor, my direct supervisor at work, she will occasionally listen to the show, and I almost hope she doesn't because she gives me the same exact critique that you just gave me. I always say, like, there was an increase in this, and she's like, no, 
you need numbers. You need specific values. And I always, always, always get that comment back from her. Analyze it. You have to, That's why you click the numbers. What do they mean? What do they tell you? I know. Oh, I can't. I don't need this from you and from her on the same day. <laughs> well, listen, it's like increasing reliability of an experiment. If two people are telling you this, it's more reliable than just one. You you just peer-reviewed me. Is that what you did? Listen, I told you I make everything into science. Everything! Someone stop her! <laughs> so, alright, so uh, I love this. You build this scaffolding, you talk about, you know, you got results, uh, here are what the factual numbers, and how does this then apply? So you're giving these kids all of it. You're, you're going from point A all the way to point B, and then you say, well, what happens at point C? This is the beyond the science. So how do you teach the beyond the science? Because you can't memorize the beyond the science. How do you teach it? So I don't teach it per se. I acknowledge it, and I provide support. So whenever they're about to do an assignment where I know they're going to start to struggle, um, because I've kind of got to that point where I know what to expect. I, I'm that person, I'm that teacher. I pull up Bloom's Taxonomy, um, and I know that this is more of a science show than an education show per se. But Bloom's Taxonomy is it's a pyramid, and it shows basically how much critical thinking it takes to do like different types of activities. So the very basic level is remembering and recall. It doesn't really take a lot to learn that because you're just writing stuff or remembering stuff, but you're not really internalizing it. And as you move up Bloom's taxonomy, you know, pyramid, it gets harder. And when you analyze, it's one of the top layers in that pyramid. So I always, I pull that pyramid up. I tell the kids, all right, when you were doing the lab, you were down here. I was like, now that you're doing the analysis, you're up here. And I was like, I expect that you're going to think it's hard. You're going to tell me that you don't know how to answer this one. Because all of a sudden, you have to be thinking more. So when they do ask for help, I remind them that what they're experiencing is normal. I will provide some guiding questions or some prompts and then let them kind of have that, have that struggle. Because that's how they're going to learn and grow. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I, You know, no one at any point in my life, maybe up until maybe three or four years ago when I started teaching courses, had ever really told me this kind of stuff. I think that that's just so useful to know, especially as a kid, that, you know, there's a difference between memorizing how to spell a word and determining how, you know, the amount of water is going to affect uh, the germination of seeds. There's a big difference there. Yeah, and it's it's a productive struggle. I mean, I'm never going to, and I'm very, very particular about my lesson planning. So I plan with the end in mind, ask myself, what are they going to do that will provide the learning to reach that end goal? And I relate everything back to stuff that we've done. I don't give them something or a question or anything that I know is going to have them shut down. I make it reasonable, but like a bit of a stretch, so they it's manageable. Um, and then I can I guide them towards it. Yeah, you're trying to kind of inspire the scientific mind. You don't want, you know, you're not really here to assess like grades, grades, grades. It sounds like you're trying to get people beyond the grade 
to get the real interest in what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So super important stuff. And I, I think a lot of things that you said had hit me while you were saying them just as, as we were talking. The one thing is that, you know, you acknowledge that the, the facts are sometimes the easy part. And I look at when I'm doing work in the lab, a lot of times I think to myself, well, gosh, you know, if I could just collect data my entire life and if I didn't have to think about it, if I didn't have to process it, if I didn't have to write it up, it would be so much easier. But in reality, when we're learning this, as you said, in ninth and 10th grade, uh, it mirrors what we're doing as adults in our jobs almost every day. Mm -hmm. So to some degree, you probably think to yourself like, gosh, it'd be easy to just write lesson plans. But then to go from lesson plan all the way to teaching and seeing it through that's like another couple steps up that pyramid, isn't it? That's super interesting stuff. I'm, I'm honestly fascinated by all of this. And a lot of this comes from my, you know, uh, kind of thoughts that, you know, how much science does a science teacher know? And that's what I would want to talk a little bit about. How much science do you need to know in order to teach science? Or is it not necessarily the science you know, it's the way you know how to teach it? It's definitely the way you know how to teach it. So a little bit about teaching science logistically. It's unique in terms of teaching certifications because you have to be certified to teach in each of the four main areas. Biology, physics, chemistry, earth science. I, I chose just to do biology. So I can only teach biology, um, which is what I want, and it's great. There's other social studies, for example. You go to school for social studies, and you can teach seventh grade social studies or economics. I mean, it's very, very versatile, but science is very narrowed, and that's what I like about it. Um, so in terms of how much of it you need to know, well, you have the program requirements for for teaching. Um, because I was a double major, I was a Bachelor of Arts in Science. So it was a couple less classes than a Bachelor of Science, just because I had to fit in all the requirements for my education piece. Um, but really, just in my experience as a student in biology classes, you could have the smartest PhD science professor and if you can't communicate or get kids to think about the content, it's a shame, but that knowledge you have isn't going to be, kids aren't going to learn it. So it's really, it's a combination of an art and a science, no pun intended, for how to teach kids science. You have to understand how the brain works. You have to understand learning. You have to understand developmental milestones. There's just so many different components to it that like it takes a special person to be able to combine all that and like pull that from a kid who doesn't have the confidence to learn science or the interest um to really kind of get them to that point that's beautiful stuff like i feel like i'm gonna start tearing up over here <laughs> you, you, you you hit everything you hit it all now, like if, if we can't communicate science we can't really truly understand it and and during such an important fundamental time in the developing of a kid's brain yes like what you're doing is making such lasting impacts on how they critically think the rest of their life and not just for science but for 
anything. It's a critical thinking is a skill, and a lot of times it's not taught. And I don't know that it's something that can be taught. It has to be developed and fostered and supported and encouraged. Wow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you, oh my gosh, you're just saying like all the right things. This is like so cool. I didn't even like expect that we would be going into this meta discussion of a meta discussion of critical thinking. It's so crazy. But that's really the nature of science is the curiosity of everything. Mm-hmm. So could you, because, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times on the show, I talk to like environmental biologists and they just spend the entire time telling us how we're polluting and, you know, we're killing all the species and stuff like that. And then I'll talk to a microbiologist and they'll be like, yeah, you're going to die if you eat this food because it all has a bacteria in it. Could you like, you know, brighten things up over here on We Know Some Stuff? Could you give me some, like, success stories, some shining moments from your career of, like, truly teaching people how to critically think? Sure. Um, about seven years ago, I taught a class called Science Research, and it was probably one of my favorite classes to teach because all the kids in that class were just like me. They loved science. They wanted to know more. Um, and the whole premise of the course is that it was a three-year commitment. They began as sophomores. They had to design a project that they were interested in. Uh, it had to be testable. They had to carry out all parts of the scientific experiment. We collaborated with the different universities or colleges for mentors. And one of the students actually made it to the International Science Fair in Arizona one year and presented her research. And it was amazing to see young people that motivated and bright just participating in the scientific world. That's something else. First of all, the fact that your your school had this program a three-year commitment to like creating your own research project that's so crazy i didn't even create my own research project until like maybe like two years ago and i've been in school for i think like 18 years or something along those lines well and you know what i loved about it too is because the kids were so interested and um bright i introduced them to academic journals which mm-hmm. you know, are the most difficult thing to read and I I taught them, you know, when scientists do an experiment like you're doing, these are the parts that they have. They have a method and material section that is highly specific. Their analysis and their conclusion is very thorough. They summarize it in an abstract. They um, have invested like um, suggestions for further investigations or improvements. It's just so intense and heavy with real science that it's good for them to be exposed to that and just kind of use that as a guide to what they want to do and kind of what to expect. Honestly, why couldn't you have been my science teacher? (gasps) That would have been awesome. That would have been something else. You know, we went to the same high school years and years ago and years apart. We weren't in at the same time. But uh, we didn't have anything like that back when we were in high school. 
And I actually chose, uh, because we were allowed to choose our last year if we wanted to take an extra English course or if we wanted to take an extra science course, I chose not to take science. And I know, I know, and here I am now trying to get a PhD over here. It, it blows my mind because I just wasn't interested in it back then. Something changed. I, you know, I still don't know exactly what changed in me. But I love it now with such a passion. And you're cultivating this passion in the future of this world. And it honestly, like, one, thank you again. But also, what you're doing is so invaluable to uh, to the, the progress that we're going to be seeing that comes out of uh, the world in the next few years. That's really nice of you to say. Thank you. Oh, I'm happy to say it. So let's uh, let's leave off with the moral of the story. Uh, long story. I, I like to do moral of the story because I always remember, you know, reading a book and they'd be like, what's the moral of the story? But, you know, we don't have enough moral of the story when it comes to science. So what is the moral of the story from everything we talked about on the show today? A lot of people have to think a while about this one. So don't worry. It's a high level thinking question. That's why. It's a high-level thinking question, Jesse. You got it. <laughs> I guess the moral of the story, science can be complicated, but you have to participate in that productive struggle and use what you learn. So this is a cool experience because it's kind of reconciling the scientific field with education. So kind of like where it began. Because the people that you talk to have a vested interest in it so i guess in terms of like my role is kind of trying to get that instilled at least more so than kids currently are interested but kind of just getting them invested in being literate in science i don't actually know what the phrase would be scientifically literate is that a word scientific yeah i think scientifically literate is the right way yeah so my job is to help people, help kids be scientifically literate, kind of reflect on the information that they receive, the validity of it, think about how it applies to them, and then kind of hope that I can foster that sense of excitement and interest in science as they get older and pursue careers or jobs or hobbies or any interest in the fields of science. Yeah, okay. That is a great moral. I love it. I love it. And and honestly, if I had a teacher like you, I probably would be even more of a nerd than I am now, if at all possible. <laughs> uh, and and I, I can't wait to see what comes from the people that you've inspired in the future. We're talking the people that are going to cure diseases, the people that are going to make the, you know, the world run on clean energy. You are arming the future with uh, curious and critically thinking people. So thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Maybe it's been years since you've stepped into a classroom or potentially you're in school right now. But if you were listening to the conversation we just had, Jesse took us to class on what it means to be a critical thinker and how we can learn to become critical thinkers when we have the tools like great science teachers.
And since talking about science and getting people to understand it is our passion, it's worthwhile to clarify a few things that we talked about in this episode. You heard it a few times, but Jesse mentioned Bloom's Taxonomy. Now, Bloom's Taxonomy is a set of three hierarchical monocles used to classify educational learning objectives into levels of complexity and specificity. The three lists cover the learning objectives in cognitive, affective, and sensory domains. The cognitive domain list has been a primary focus of most traditional education and is frequently used to structure curriculum, learning objectives, and assessment activities. Now, that was ripped straight from the Wikipedia page of what Bloom's Taxonomy was, and I had to read that about three times to even understand how to pronounce most of those words. But Bloom's Taxonomy, more or less, is sort of a pyramid that we can use in order to judge how we learn. So, working our way up that pyramid, at the bottom, the most foundational parts of that pyramid is remembering. This is things like recalling facts and basic concepts. As we move up, we begin to understand, which allows us to explain ideas or concepts. Further up, we apply. We use the information in new situations, that information that we learned in the steps before. Then we analyze where we draw conclusions among those ideas. And this is the step that Jesse was saying that the kids have to get to in their science reports. Above that, even more, is evaluate. That's when you justify or stand or make a real decision based on all of the information that you have. And lastly, create. That is to produce or make original work based on all of the steps that came before. So by learning something like Bloom's Taxonomy, we can say to ourselves, yeah, it might be difficult to learn and remember some of these facts, but if we really want to be able to analyze, we should give ourselves a little bit of leeway because that's pretty far up the pyramid of learning. And since this show is called We Know Some Stuff, we always have to admit that we don't know everything. Which is why it's tradition for us to do a little fact check. When discussing what a science teacher needs to know to teach science, Jesse said that you need to be certified in each of the specific fields of science that was ranging from biology, chemistry, physics, and the earth sciences. Uh, what should be clarified about that is that you only get a certification in one minimum. You can, of course, get more certifications. And it should be even further clarified that this changes based on where you're teaching, depending on your districts, depending on the country, the state, the province, wherever you end up, the requirements are slightly different. Other than that, we, to the best of our knowledge, have no more facts that need to be corrected. In due time, we may find out that there are facts that we got a little bit wrong. But, as Jesse mentioned, that's the nature of science. It's always changing. And when that day comes, we'll be more than happy to correct ourselves. After this conversation with Jesse, we can say our basic facts are that the show is over, our evidence is that I've run out of time, so our analysis is you have just finished listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.